Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 158 for August 21st, 2008, listener feedback number 48. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by Visa. With every purchase, Visa prevents, detects, and resolves online fraud. Safe, secure, Visa. It's time for security now. Time to protect yourself and your systems and your internet. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the star of our show, Mr. Steve Gibson. Hey, Yay! Steve. <laughs> Hi, Leo. Hey, it's good to talk to you. Steve is, uh, of course, the guy behind Spinrite and uh, many other wonderful security programs as well, like Shields Up. And uh, he was the guy who first discovered spyware and let the world know about it. Actually wrote the first spyware program, but quickly passed it on to the folks at uh, Adaware. Let them do the job. Uh, and he joins us every week to talk about the latest in security. This is a Q&A week, isn't it? It is a Q&A week. I've been having a ball for the last couple of weeks coding a uh, a set of pseudo-DNS name servers for <laughs> GRC's forthcoming um, very, very high-quality uh, DNS spoofability test. Oh, cool. So oh, cool. it's going to be extremely nice. Oh, I, I'm really, I've just been having a ball. It's like there's nothing I like better than just keep my head down in the code and, you love and coding don't you i do it's yeah. just it's like oh it's just you know it's just perfect i've done i've been uh, you know I'm, I'm learning a language called lua l-u-a which is a um, very nice little scripting language very similar to python or c but it's used in um, it's so lightweight and it's very easy to embed into applications so it's used in a lot of applications as their scripting language so it's kind of a handy thing to know um, and if, well, it's in World of Warcraft, for instance, uh, it's in, uh, I, I started using it because of program I use in the Mac voodoo paddle uh, uses it, but, uh, but now I'm kind of into it and yeah, it is fun. It's fun to write little dippity doo programs and a scripting language is very good for that. Cause you have an interpreter and it's very easy to, you know, test your stuff out and it has some nice little features that make it fun to fun to write. So I understand yeah. how you feel. It's, yeah, it's just, it's just, I just love it. I, I regret in, in, in a lot of ways, there are a few things that I would have, liked to have done in my life and one of them is uh, be a coder but your path was different my Leo. path was different and i probably wouldn't have been very good at it anyway so there you know what i'm I, really I, I actually disagree i think you've got a very logical very you know kind i know i know i'm serious i think you would have been good uh, and you're good at this too so this is what, <laughs> this is what we need you for this i'll write it. the code yeah you write you, the code and you i'll create the twit zone and do the commercials This show is brought to you by, as always, Visa. It's kind of nice. Visa knows about security. They care about security, and they they wanted to be on this show because they know that listeners to Security Now are security aware. And when you go online shopping, you kind of want to be aware of, uh, you know, what you're doing and who else is there and, you know, what issues could come up. And, And the best thing about Visa is they know it and they protect you, and I really admire them for that. 
Visa is uh, is using very high end um, fraud monitoring software. Watches every transaction. I hear it a lot. I heard it. I was at New Media Expo. Somebody said, "Yeah, they call me. I bought something um, and it was really expensive, and they called me, and uh, and they uh, they said, did you did you really buy this?'" And I said, "Yeah," and 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 they were f- nice and friendly. But you know, they're not going to call you all the time. But when something out of the ordinary happens. You don't have to constantly monitor your bill. They're doing it for you. And ultimately, what this means is zero liability. You're just not liable for unauthorized purchases. So remember, when you go online shopping, next time you're buying something online, make sure you take your Visa card along with you. Safe, secure Visa. All right, now, Steve Gibson, I have 100. I'm sorry, this is 158. (laughs) I have have 12 great questions for you. But before we uh, get to those, I do want to find out if anything has happened in the world of security since we talked last. Well, the good news is not not much. Hey, um, I like know, that. <laughs> last week we had the, you know, one of the Grand Mall Windows patch second Tuesday of the month updates in a long time. I mean like a a, a long list of all critical security problems that Microsoft was patching and and did patch and I noticed too there seemed to be some some stray ones that kind of came along later. Um, I think twice after I did the full update myself um, Tuesday afternoon, I was alerted twice more between mm. then and now that oh here's a little something else. It's like okay, I guess this one you know wasn't queued up when I when I did my manual restart you know and and check or who knows what maybe they were just fixing some things but. Anyway, it was a uh, two. You know, last week was a big one. Um, this week, things have been relatively quiet on the security front. The one interesting sort of news item that I saw and I thought was sort of interesting, it was that Congress is beginning to understand about the problem of ISPs doing deep packet inspection oh, and you know, and being involved in spying on their own customers and in rather startling congressional testimony they actually it was questionnaires they sent out to but under you know the congressional stamp so you know you want to tell the truth on these um almost all of 30 major connectivity providers ISPs confessed to congress that at one time or another uh and maybe even now they were doing surreptitious monitoring of their of their customers' traffic without their customers' knowledge or permission or even mentioning it in the license agreement. Some of I mean, them admitted it, to using Nebuad even. Yeah, so, yeah it's, uh, I think at least two of them wow. said, oh, yeah, we, we tried Nebuad and, and we're not doing it now, uh, but, you know, we're looking at this in the future. And, and, and they said, oh, but, you know, we would like to make it an opt-in thing like well that uh, would be okay right oh absolutely i have no problem with that at all as long as people have that opportunity the good news is the eff folks the electronic um freedom foundation electronic frontier foundation frontier foundation um are like on top of this and financing you know educating congress and and doing what they can to uh, to keep this thing from spiraling out of control and what what uh, i think it's um Representative Markey is yeah, Ed Markey, yeah. Ed Markey, who who is like big on privacy, he's making noise about a uh, working to pass a law next year 
that would require opt-in. Good. And if we could have that, you know, that would be spectacular. Well, I think that would be good for everybody, including the industry, because the industry could, you know, most people are going to opt in if you give them a reason to opt in. So the industry just is upfront about it instead of sneaking yeah. around and doing it, right? Yeah, exactly. And it was funny, so speak, speaking on that, um, I saw another little thing there where there were some strong cautionary advisories sent out to people traveling out of the U.S. And I think this the, the timing was, was, it wasn't coincidental that it was relative to the, the Olympics in China. Right. And that is in basically just warning people to take your electronics and the data on them very, um, you know, seriously relative to security that in other countries that don't have the, you know, the, the even the fundamental um, constitutional privacy rights that we do in the U.S., you know, your hotel room can be searched. You're, you, mm. you can be asked to hand over any de- electronic device you've got by a customs official who can dump the contents of it. And in some cases, you, you can... You can be prevented from bringing into a country encrypted data. They just say uh, no. So, wow. Yeah, wow. So, they, so if they say if you have something encrypted, they're just going to take it off. I mean, they're just going to well, say you, you turn around. You can't. Yeah, if we can't read it, you can't bring it in. Wow. So you know that's one way yeah. to handle it, though, rather than saying you have to unencrypt it for us. Yeah, exactly. Say sorry. You want you know you want to leave your laptop with us? You you can come into the country. And then also following on from last week's discussion, remember we were talking as you were getting ready to head off to Podcast Expo, you've had some problems with RAID Zero. We were talking about the importance of not running SpinWrite in front of the RAID controller, but rather running it on each right. of the drives individually. And I haven't had so, a chance to do that yet, but yeah, I've I, got to do that, yeah. I got email from someone. Actually, I ran across this as I was, as I was catching up on, the, on my mailbag uh, in preparation for today's Q&A. Uh, some guy named... Uh, Doug Sauer, um, he said, Stephen Leo, thank you for your podcasts. The DNS discussions are so important at this time. Unless we are paranoid freaks, many IT professionals tend not to believe the evil of the hackers out there today. He says, okay, one of my home systems has a three-drive RAID 5. This system is four years old now, still running fast enough because I bought an Intel board with dual 2.2 gigahertz Xeons back then. Hmm. The, the RAID reported that I had lost a drive two weeks ago. Now, of course, since he's in RAID 5, he's, got, he's running three drives, so that means he's got the space of two drives so that any one drive could fail and he would lose no data. So, so essentially, you know, that's more efficient, for example, than a pure mir- mirroring where you get exactly 50% of your total drive space here he's got one drive essentially as acting as a parity drive so that any one of the three can die and and the raid keeps on going but in this case it said oops you you know a drive just died and he said so i pulled the bad drive bay out and ran the bad drive on a freshly purchased copy of spinrite presto disk fully recovered i also separately ran each of the other two drives and Spinrite found and repaired errors on each of them as well. I will now be imaging to an external drive and coming up with an upgrade plan. I was not going to send a letter to you, as I imagine you get so many accolades. However, your last podcast with Leo, you advised him to do a drive at a time on his RAID 0. For once in my life, 
I was just one small step ahead of Leo. <laughs> this temporary state of euphoria prompted me to write to both of you. I appreciate both of you and your service to us as listeners. I forwarded off all the podcasts relating to DNS to all my team members. They are a big help as the DNS issue continues to unfold. Thanks again, Doug Sauer, Indianapolis, Indiana. So Very thank cool. you, Doug, for your note. Really appreciate it. Glad to hear that. And uh, before we get into the Q&A, if you don't mind, I'd like to mention my Audible book pick of the week, and then we will uh, get into your questions and answers. We'll make this quick. Remember, if you, uh, if you want to get an audio book from Audible for free, all you have to do is join up now at audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You'll find so many great books. And every time I talk to Audible, more and more science fiction. I'm really pleased that they're putting the, the effort into getting the sci-fi onto uh, audible.com. In fact, uh, this is something brand new. I know we've talked about Neil Gaiman before. I love Neil Gaiman. He is uh, he is one of my favorite authors, the creator of the Sandman comics, and a great sci-fi or fantasy author in his own right. But he has uh, introduced a, a classic series, seven classics uh, by Fritz Lieber, called Lankmar. And now I haven't read this, but uh, he says these are uh, among the most influential books uh, in his life. Uh, it sounds like kind of sword and sorcery uh, fantasy a little bit. In fact, the first book is called Swords and Deviltry, then Swords Against Death, then Swords in the Mist. You get the idea. No uh, phaser. <laughs> no phasers in this one. But uh, I'm a big fan of Fritz Lieber. His stuff is fantastic. So this sounds like it would be great. Jonathan Davis and uh, Neil Gaiman introduces these. Jonathan Davis reads them. Uh, I haven't read them, but I am putting them on my list now. And you might too. This is what's great about Audible. They're actually... Stepping out and doing, this is exclusive for Audible, and they're doing these kinds of things uh, because they know the science fiction publishers in many cases don't make audiobooks. So Audible's taken it upon themselves to do that, and I think that's really great. If you love sci-fi, if you love books, if you if you have time when you're in the car or at work or in the gym or just somewhere where you can't be holding a book and reading it, Audible's so great. I tell you, 50,000 titles, more all the time. You're going to love it. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now and listen to all our shows for great recommendations even Roz, who's rowing across the pacific has recommendations she read <laughs> you like this steve she read life of pi which is i don't know if you've ever read that it's a wonderful book but it's about a guy who gets shipwrecked with a tiger in a boat in the pacific and here she is in the middle of the pacific oh, and i thought i don't know <laughs> this <laughs> this is really maybe a little too real for her. but she said no i loved it it gave me a a whole new sense of uh, what i was doing out here and one of the things they say in life of pi is that no one should ever try to row across the Pacific, which, of course, is exactly what she's doing. So I love that. All right, let's get to the questions. I've got them. You ready? I'm ready. Ready to answer some toughies? Well, I shouldn't say they're tough. I don't know. I Well, they're interesting and illuminating. Illuminating. We, we always look for. You picked them, so I figure, you know, you must have something yeah, to say about it. I'm pretty ready. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Sargent starts us off from the UK. He wonders whether debouncing is really double trouble. Hi, Steve. I was listening to your Security Now podcast, episode 157, on the continuing DNS vulnerabilities. At one point, you stated that the idea of debouncing spoofed DNS by requiring two identical query results had been aired but discarded because this had doubled the number of packets required for each lookup. Is that really true? The key point is to only allow changes to the DNS when they've been validated with a second query and reply. Each DNS server holds a cache of results from previous lookups, so it will only generate a new request in one of two cases. One, it hasn't seen the address before. Boom, then you're going to ask again. Or two, the TTL, the time to live, has run out on the cached result. 
In this case, a single request to be generated. If the result is the same as the cache, no second request necessary. If it has changed, then it would be verified with another request. So what he's saying is you'd only have to make that second request if something seemed out of the ordinary uh, or, you know, was a new address. Assuming that DNS records rarely change the number of additional verification query packets related to TTL expiration would be very low. The question then becomes how often are DNS lookups a complete cache miss? How often DNS lookups um, have a complete cache miss? That is, no record exists, expired or not, because that's the only case when uh, the 2x increase would incur. Is that often enough that you get a cache miss? Is it still a problem? Is that So is he understanding the idea of debounce properly? Well, kind of. First of all, um, I liked his clever notion that, that if a DNS name server had, a, had an entry in its cache, which, which it was going to verify by asking again, then if it got the same answer, and we, we, we know that the, I mean, the, whole, the whole concept of DNS is that it's, it's, it's a distributed database, so chunks of the current mapping between domain names and IP addresses are, are able to float around on servers that only periodically check in to see if there's been any change. So that's a really nice trade-off. It it means that that the the there's no like sort of central server that bears the brunt of everyone asking questions, but the trade-off is that you don't get instantaneous updates in the event that an IP address changes. So for example, you know, I, I know you and I Leo have from time to time needed to change the IP address of a domain right. and there's this notion of it needing to propagate through the internet. What that what that really means is that all spread around the world are if in locations where people have accessed a domain recently there is a a slowly expiring copy and as long as it's not yet expired then then when questions come to that server they'll be answered from the cache rather than going back and having to re-resolve it immediately so mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a clever you know beautifully clever solution so he's noted that in the event that a a, a name server has s- some data in its cache when it sees that it's expired it could it could only make a single query in order to verify that 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 what's there is still current and if it's if the result it gets back is different then that raises its suspicion that oh wait a minute Maybe uh, I need to check this a few more times to increase confidence that I didn't get a spoofed response. So I mean, well, that, that makes sense. It, oh, it's absolutely. I mean, he's right about that. The the one thing that this misunderstands, which is why I really liked the question, is that what it was that that Dan Kaminsky realized was that you could you could force servers to make queries rather than waiting for their caches to expire. Ah. That was the brilliant gotcha that occurred to him. It used to be, I mean, you know, if you, if you, like three months ago, before this whole DNS spoofing nightmare arose, you could put DNS spoofing or spoofing DNS or something into Google, and you'd get pages and pages and pages. I mean, this notion of spoofing DNS is not new, but, but but everyone believed that you had to wait for the, the, the server's existing 
cached record to expire and then you could make as soon as it expired it's not going to go replace it all by itself it's going to wait for a query and then look and then upon receiving a query it checks the record to see if it's expired thereby launching its own query out to resolve that name so the idea would be you would you you know you bad hacker person would sit there um, wait for the record to expire because when you ask the server, it tells you how much time there is left remaining on that record. And that's mm-hmm. a cool thing, too. If you think about it, it has to because then you might be caching that record and you don't want to start at eight hours again. You want to you want to understand how stale the record is so that your own cache will expire at the same time that the cache of the source of that record was. So anyone asking a DNS server, you can tell I've been living in DNS for a couple of weeks. I've <laughs> really got this stuff now on the tip of my tongue. Anyone talking to a DNS server, querying it, knows how much longer it'll be before one of its records will expire. So they're able, as soon as that happens, that's when they launch their query to it, knowing that it's having to launch a query out, and then they rush their spoofed response back in. That's the traditional way, and that limited you to one shot at at replacing a record only every TTL interval, which is typically one day. A, a standard internet time to live for DNS is a day. So you you know once a day you had a tiny window of opportunity. Clearly, this wasn't a huge problem. Um, what what Dan realized is you could you could ask it a bunch of of, for the for a bunch of non-existent machines in a domain, forcing it to to constantly ask upstream for that that domain's name server if this machine exists, and you could sneak in a response to that request that carried replacement name server records, and of course that's the nature of the attack. So so Paul was right that um, that if we didn't have what Kaminsky realized happening then you could do verification do you know if, essentially in a cost effective manner only only duplicating some queries if if a if a domain was asked for that was not in the cache and and then only again if a verification that the ip had not changed from what was in the cache came back with a different answer so i think you know paul was clever but that doesn't solve the problem that you know we've just had could you rewrite the way DNS works so that you couldn't ask for these uh, multiple updates? I mean, isn't that a bug too? Oh yeah, I mean, there's all kind. Well, I'm sure right now, Leo, there are firewall vendors, you know, corporate firewall vendors, madly adding code to their firewalls, yeah, right. and that they'll have new bullet points on their new brochures in in a month, saying, you know, special next generation DNS spoof proofing for your D, your corporate DNS server. So there's all kinds of things you could do that would mean make it really obvious that you know, the, here's here here comes a flood. Of responses in in response to one query, okay, that's wrong. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it stands out like a sore thumb. But right now, nothing is aware of that. So I'm sure there will there are doubtless firewall vendors are madly rushing to get theirs to market f- first because essentially one query goes out and ten thousand come in. It's like okay, ah, uh, maybe I'm going to ask that question <laughs> something again. Wrong. Something wrong something, there. Yeah, it's wrong. Yeah. With this. Yeah. yeah, good. All right. Uh, 
On to question two. An anonymous listener asked a great question. Is IP whitelisting a secure method of limiting access to a website? Hi, Stephen Leo. IP whitelisting. I'd like to run a private company wiki, but located off-site using PBWiki. I want to make access for our users easy. No user or password required. So uh, I could use PBWiki's whitelist feature. So you essentially say you make a list of IP addresses that are allowed to log on. They just log on automatically. All traffic for a business account at PBWiki runs over SSL. So if I were to whitelist only our company's IP addresses, would this be a secure way of limiting access and keeping everyone else out? Thanks for a great show. I've been a listener since episode one. Uh, the answer is yes. Um, Even with IP- spoofing. Oh, because he said SSL. Exactly. Yeah. I was, yeah, I was well, and remember now um, that wiki access is going to be over a web page and web page is TCP based. Right. So even without SSL, you are unable to spoof. Um, you're able to un, you're unable to spoof an IP. Nobody at, at, a, at a different IP is able to obtain a connection because your att- your connection attempt will be checked against a valid IP range. And even if you sent a SYN packet in from from a valid IP range that is spoofing your source IP so that 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 incoming SYN packet to the wiki site carried the IP address of the corporation, well, when it acknowledged that, it would go to that IP. Oh. That's right. It would, of course, it would go to it would go to the corporation. So, so, so fa- spoofing the in, uh, incoming packet's not going to work. Correct. The yeah. only the only um, vulnerability, and it's it's not a big one, um, is some sort of a man in the middle attack. That is, the you know even SSL won't prevent you because we're assuming that any browser that's using SSL um, is going to be connecting. So, so if somebody like you know in an ISP or in you know anywhere in the line of your traffic we're able to to outside of your corporate um enclosure we're able to to get into your traffic that is so that they were able to receive ip packets bound for the corporation that would allow them to create a connection that would be validated by the ip whitelisting but you know that's you know we're we're essentially saying well Sure, you know, you'd have to be an ISP. Well, ISPs have access to all of our traffic anyway. You know, I mean, level three has access to all of my traffic. I'm, you know, I mean, you know, I'm protected myself for the things that I do between between home and my network at level three. You know, I'm, I know, SSH and so forth and, and, and a secure VPN. But, you know, technically, you know, anybody in the line does have access. So IP spoofing certainly protects any, you know, random person anywhere on the internet from being able to make an, a TCP connection to a web server like for using a wiki, but it doesn't protect you in the case of an ISP. And by the way, if you were to use a username and password, well, that could be that could be sniffed except an SSL connection would would encrypt a username and password. So that's some that's one place where SSL would make sense. If he was using SSL and was concerned that somebody that had access to his wire might be reading the company wiki, then that's where using a username and password or just a passphrase or, or something with you know known only to corporate individuals 
um, that would not be sniffable by somebody doing a man-in-the-middle attack because you can't break into an SSL connection. Yeah, yeah. Very good and very simple. So uh, I, so it's safe. IP whitelisting would be safe. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good solution. It's a good In technique. Fact, it's, it's one of the things that I use. There are some ports that are open at level three, TCP connections, which it was impractical for me to... Um, to 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 block or to run SSL SSL over. So I have some I have some filters at level three that will that give my IP range here at home special rights. I'm using my, the IPs to get special access to level three, and it's not spoofable. Very cool. Would you recommend uh, not having passwords, or wouldn't you just have passwords to them just to be you know belt and suspenders? Well, I guess, again, it's like anything in security is, you know, here's the trade-off. He says he wants to make it easy for his company people to access the wiki, where he'll just, you know, give them a URL and they'll just bang. There it is. No logon required. That's really good because, you know, he can't give me the URL and have me access his wiki. I can't. I'm not at his IP. I have no access to his traffic. So if the, if the, so it's a trade-off. He, if he, all he has to understand is that an ISP or somebody, you know, carrying his traffic could put a browser there, you know, and and intercept his traffic and get access to his to his corporate wiki. That's probably not a big problem based on you know what's there. He just wants to keep it private. It doesn't sound like it's state secrets. But if knowing that he decides, okay, it's worth using a passphrase and SSL. To, so that absolutely nobody outside of our, our, our corp- corporation is able to access the wiki. And in which case, you might then remove the filtering, because that way an employee could access the wiki from home. It looks Notice like it's just local. Exactly. Oh, yeah. oh home. Yeah, home. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, because, yeah. I mean, that might, you know, somebody might want to be able to sure. access the, the corporate wiki from home. The IP filter absolutely blocks that, right. whereas, of course, username and password would permit it. Right. Stroker in Florida poses some interesting questions about DNS. Hi, Steve. Regarding DNS, why does a domain's name servers need to be able to change the IP numbers at the top-level domain name server? When we register a new domain, we specify the domain name server's IPs at the registrar, right? So why can't we just make the registrar the only place to change the domain's DNS IP numbers? Then we only need to make the registrar to TLD DNS name server connections secure as with uh, via IP, like via IP numbers only. As to the SSL worry, why should we, you want to answer that or should I move on to the second part? Do it uh, all in a chunk. Um, they're all kind of related. Okay, as to the SSL worry, why can't certificate authorities use IP address only, no DNS? Certificate authority IPs could be included in the CA list used by the browser. That's the uh, certificate authority. I suppose the CAs depend on DNS for traffic leveling and is bandwidth distribution using multiple IP numbers. There must be another way to do that. I think financial institutions and other mission-critical sites should be required to allow access by IP number. I've tried such access, but most are using traffic leveling so that I could not access them directly by IP number. That's interesting. Couldn't they just distribute a range of IPs among their customers when giving them out? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's practical when you visit our bank go to 192.168.1.4 that's your number 
Couldn't they do something, do some kind of redirect at the server or use some other means to distribute the load besides IP distribution? Just some random thoughts. Thanks for your time and efforts. Can, maybe you should explain what, he, what he's proposing here. Oh, I'm going to. Um, th- there, were, there were sort of a number of misconceptions embodied in the questions, and, and Stroker was not the only person to have them. I ran across this a bunch of times, so I sort of wanted to, to clarify some things. There were a number of people who I, maybe were confused by me last time or the time before talking about the, the nature of DNS spoofing and SSL certificate verification. Mm. That is, there seemed to be this sense, and, and, and this is what, what Stroker was referring to in the second part of his question, saying, well, why, why don't um, certificate authorities use their IP addresses? The, the belief, I think, that I saw in, among several people was that, that there's a connection being made to validate and verify a chain of authority, a, a certificate chain, at the time that an SSL connection is made. That is, so you're not only connecting to a foreign site, but you're also, at, at that time, connecting to, you know, VeriSign or GoDaddy or whoever has issued the certificate. And so I wanted to make it clear that that's not the case. Your, your computer and your, specifically your browser comes with it built in all of these certificate authorities, the, 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 the so-called root authorities, which are, um, are signing the certificates you get from websites when you attempt to connect to them. So when you initiate a connection over an SSL connection to a secure website, your browser gets the certificate from the other end and then verifies its digital signature, verifies that it has been signed by one of the certificates in your own local cache of certificate authorities. So there is no connection being made constantly to some other remote certificate authority. So, you know, so that doesn't need to get changed. The other thing, in the first part of his question, he's asking when we register a new domain, we specify the domain's name server IPs to the registrar. And he says, so why can't we make the registrar the only place to change the domain's DNS IP numbers? What he's saying is, why can't, you know, because the, one of the, the real problem, the power of the attack that Kaminsky realized was that when responding to a bogus machine request for a domain, like, you know, XYZ123, google.com if you could respond to that to that request and get it in then that response could contain replacement name server records that would replace the records in that name server for google.com that was the whole power and the horror of what what Kaminsky discovered and so so stroker saying wait a minute you know why not disallow that well, the, okay, the problem is that that would require far more accessing up the domain name space. Essentially, what he's saying is, why not disallow caching name server records? And essentially, all of our, you know, the bulk of our caching would, would disappear. We absolutely depend upon 
caching, as I was mentioning um, at, at the beginning of this Q&A, in order for the system to operate. So name server records have to have TTLs, time to lives that, that, that expire, as do address records and MX records for mail. And, and you know, bas basically, that's the whole structure of the system. So, so it's true that disallowing name server caching would prevent this particular problem, but the the whole architecture of DNS would collapse because <laughs> it's 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 near the edge as it is with all the caching we've got. And if we disallowed caching, then it just wouldn't work. Congratulations, you cured the disease but killed the patient. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well done. Bravo. There are a lot of cures like that, even in medicine. Uh, moving on to question four, Ollie Lindgren from Sweden wants to blend his threats. Who doesn't? You were speaking about Kaminsky's DNS findings, and we have been quite a bit, uh, and how it didn't break SSL. That, of course, is correct. But imagine the blended threat if an SSL certificate was issued on a vulnerable Debian system. In that case, the private key corresponding to this certificate would be quite easy to guess. Because of the, uh, is, I presume that's because of the Debian uh, randomizing issue, right? Right, where they where they thought they were improving it and right. they just badly broke it. Uh, the private key can be used to authenticate the server, but also to cryptograph cryptographically sign content that is software updates. Together with DNS cache poisoning, it becomes quite a nasty threat. At least three large open ID providers and one major bank have been using weak. Debian certs. Ooh, that's bad. So let's describe how this works because this wow. is a, it was a great question, and you know we've never we've never explicitly talked about blended threats. So this is a a great opportunity. I mean, I had a perfect example. So okay, so here's the problem. Debian um, was discovered some time ago, and we talked about this at the time to to have a a bad um, certificate randomization to have bad certificate randomization code such that if you if you generated a certificate request on a Debian system, the 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 random number in the request was had very low entropy, very easy to to figure out. So that request would then go to a, a company like GoDaddy or VeriSign, Network Solutions, anyone who issues secure secure certificates, they would they would sign your request and send it back to you. So now you have a website running, you know, that is able to accept SSL connections from users' browsers. And as we have said before, SSL is a is a is a prophylactic around spoofing because if you have a secure connection to a remote website like for example we've used the the case of PayPal a secure connection to PayPal or even you know Gmail if you if you use https to get to Gmail you're able to to check the certificate on the secure page and see that it was actually issued to google.com or paypal.com so so here's the problem if the site you wanted to spoof was ha, had their certificate generated by a Debian system, you could you could independently crack their certificate because their certificate is not secure. And in cracking their certificate, you get their private key. 
and in getting and that's the thing I absolutely must protect in getting their private key because it doesn't have much entropy it's easy to get their private key then you could make your own certificate essentially and okay so now you have the ability to pretend to to essentially to accept an SSL connection to this bad website the problem is you don't have any way to get people to come to you thus dns spoofing so you if you spoof dns then anybody trying to get to the valid site instead gets your ip they go to your server which has a valid certificate for that site and bingo you've got an ssl connection and there's i mean nothing we know unless you happen to have memorized the ip address and was like checking the ip address your browser was connecting to <laughs> oh, i do that all the time <laughs> nobody does that uh, no, so that that's what a blended threat means. It's the idea of taking sort of like two small problems that individually aren't such a huge problem, but when you put them together, you get something that's much more than the sum of the two. And so this would be if if you if you did something like this, you'd have a complete bulletproof spoofing of whatever site had a weak certificate to begin to begin with, and you'd mix that with DNS spoofing in order to bring people to you who are saying, "Oh, look, I really am at PayPal because I've got a, I've got I right clicked on my page and I checked my security chain and everybody signed it and the certificate's <laughs> valid, so I'm going to type in all my personal information." Oops. Oops. That's what I do. Yikes! Scary thought. Very scary thought. So Ollie was right. That's definitely a blended threat. Trevor Harrison, Vancouver, British Columbia, wonders, how do IP addresses work? One thing, Stephen Leo, you didn't mention about DNS is how does the IP address know where to go? Oh, this is a great question. To find the right computer. I know it goes uh, DNS to IP to NIC, but how does everyone in the world know the IP address of a NIC? Also related to this. Even if you have the correct domain and the correct IP address, couldn't the NIC somehow be spoofed and redirect the IP address to the wrong computer on the Internet? How do it work, Mr. Steve? That was a great question. We've yeah. sort of we've sort of covered this uh, when we were talking about routing in our probably in our first year of, of security now. But but that's what routing is. The idea is that IP addresses are assigned in blocks. Um you know, at level three, I've I've got an IP address for grc.com, which is you know starts off four dot ninety seven dot one forty two dot whatever it is. Um, most of the people um, in that building or in that region of level three, their IP addresses also begin with four dot seventy nine dot one forty two. So the idea is that that routers scattered around the internet. They may know, for example, anything that starts with four goes over in this direction, and anything starts with five goes in that direction, anything starts with six goes in that direction. And so the idea is they send the traffic sort of in the best direction they can based on what they're connected to. So because all routers are connected to other multi- multiple other routers, and they have a routing table. That, that whose sole job is when a packet comes in, the routing table is is checked, and that just tells it, okay, send that packet out that out of that connection at that interface toward another router because the routing table says somewhere off 
in that direction is the IP, the actual endpoint. So when that packet arrives at that next router, it's got its own routing table, which is different from the previous router's routing table, because this one says, oh, these are the places I'm connected to. When packets come in, where should I send them? And so it's just that. Essentially, the, the, the packets get closer and closer to their destination, and as they do, more bits from the front of the IP address, four starts off just being four, then, then it's, you know, 4.79, that, you know, that gets it much closer, and then four dot, maybe it's between zero and and 128 goes over here, and between 129 and 255, that goes over here. So it sort of, it successively breaks down the IP address using more and more bits from the start of the IP address toward the back until you finally get to the router just in front of you that says, ah, I actually am connected to that IP, to that particular machine. So that's where it sends the final packet to. It's basically how a, how a zip code works, right? Yes, it's very much. Zip codes are also hierarchical. Um, and in fact, that's one of the, again, one of the brilliant things about the way the internet was built. And Trevor last asked, couldn't the NIC somehow be spoofed and right. redirect the IP address to the wrong computer on the internet? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. It's not exactly the NIC that would be spoofed. It would be the router. And, of course, that's another whole class of, of successful attacks is you, you do uh, what's called BGP spoofing. BGP is the, is the, um, is the protocol um, that routers use for exchanging this routing information among themselves. And there have been attacks where, for example, um, a, a, a BGP protocol uses TCP. So it's a, it's a theoretically non-spoofable connection, except that early versions of the TCP protocol did not do a very good job about randomizing their, their initial sequence numbers, the, the sort of the 32-bit number that sort of starts the numbering for all the bytes that follow. So there were weak sequence number randomization. And in fact, in the beginning, they weren't random at all. They just kind of kept going linearly upwards because you, you didn't want them to wrap around or that could cause some confusion. So it was sort of better not to have them completely random. So there were attacks that actually had people like they would they would contact the router themselves. That would initiate a connection that would allow them to read the router's current TCP initial sequence number. Very much like the attack, when you think about it, on DNS, where, where you would make a query and get the current transaction ID and then send a bunch of, of responses with successive IDs back in the day when those were linear. So similarly, you could, you could guess what the communication would be with another BGP server and essentially splice in to their TCP connection and load false routing tables causing packets to go where you wanted to. So, you know, that's another class of attack on the Internet. Not something we've talked about before, but, you know, it's been there, it's been done, and uh, security has been improved in order to make it harder to do. Put that on your list of shows we, uh, we would like to do as a show about routing and how it works and a show about BGP and how it works. Yeah. I think both of those would be great subjects. We've never talked about routing. Ex have we? Maybe we have. Yeah. I think That's pretty fundamental. Whole, we must have done a show on that. I think we did a How the Internet Works. Yeah. Okay. Sure. 
So I refer you back to that. Many moons ago, Trevor. Tim, who's hiding in Houston with his iPhone, says, How secure is my phone? Uh, Steve, I downloaded many podcasts, but whenever I get a new episode of yours, I always listen to it first. As the title suggests, my question involves iPhone security. My uh, question is simply, or maybe not so simply, how secure is the iPhone? It has Bluetooth, which I leave off unless I'm using it. I use Wi-Fi when I'm at home at work, but I usually leave it on. It often sees other open networks. Is there any security risk to leaving the Wi-Fi on all the time? Can someone hack the phone while it's in my pocket? For that matter, how secure is it when I'm on the 3G or Edge network? I'd ask about joining one of the open networks, but I think I already know your answer to that. I guess he means open <laughs> Wi-Fi networks. Right. Yeah. Well, the answer is um, radio is bad. Well, that's all a phone is. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> and, and anything you say here uh, is true of any, uh, of any uh, smartphone. With yes, Wi-Fi I'm not and so exactly. Forth. I'm not. I'm not singling out the iPhone at all. Radio is bad. I mean, it's it's necessary. I'm not saying we don't all use it. I do. I've got Wi-Fi here. I've got it wrapped up in a in a you know WPA encryption with a a passphrase from hell. You know that I got from grc.com/passwords. So you know I'm as secure as I can be. But several times during the history of this podcast, we've talked about. Um, vulnerabilities in, for example, Intel's Wi-Fi drivers. It was one not even that long ago where it was found that down in the actual packet processing, way down at the bottom, the first place the packets go when it comes hot in off the aerial, you know, off the radio antenna, had an overflow. So before encryption and decryption, before authentication, before anything else, it was possible to simply broadcast a malformed, a deliberately malicious bit of radio noise and take over a machine. So that is a that that isn't saying anything about specific phones or PCs or or anything. But we know how difficult it is to make truly, truly bug-free software. And if a bug of of this nature occurs down at the very first stages of of data processing on Wi-Fi, then you've got a serious problem. Mm. And it means that, you know, if this were found, somebody could easily be broadcasting malicious packets in a public place, taking over you know, any, for example, if, if a problem were found in the iPhone, I don't know that any exists, but if there were one that were discovered, um, they could... Broadcast a malicious packet, which would take over your phone. You do so, have to explicitly join a, a Wi-Fi network on the no, iPhone. Does that protect you? No. 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 In the case of this Intel, that you, 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 all you had to have was your radio on. Wow. And it was receiving stuff, and the and the kernel level driver was processing it, and there was a there was an exploit for that mm. that 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 was that came out so all you had to do is just receive the packet even with no connection to the network because you know that all the network connection stuff is way back further upstream behind encryption behind um authentication behind the tcp stack and all that this was right down the first place that the the bits went after they turned from radio bits into electron bits uh i guess Radio bits are electron bits, but still, uh, <laughs> <laughs> into digital bits, um, you know, bang, there was a buffer overflow opportunity. So 
radio is bad, I would say turn off Wi-Fi. Besides, it, it consumes power. It does, I understand yeah. The iPhone has no power to spare. Yeah, yeah. it's one so, good way to save. If you're not, uh, and I, you know, I, I have, uh, I turn off Ask to join Wi-Fi networks, but I think you're absolutely right. Turn off Wi-Fi, uh, turn off 3G, you know, anything you're not using, you should turn off anyway. Yeah, and turn off Bluetooth. I mean, he is keeping Bluetooth off, and right. I'm glad for that because we know that there have been, there have been problems with that as well. But the, again, in general, um, well, I mean, there are, problems, there are problems with Bluetooth if you, uh, even even if there isn't an exploit, if you just leave it open. Yes, but, uh, if you leave it discoverable. Right. But in general, these are all, these, explo- these are exploits. They require errors in the programming. It's not like, uh, except for that Bluetooth discoverable issue, it's not like this is kind of part of the natural, normal nature of things. That's correct. Yeah. But there are always holes. That's the problem. There always seem to be, don't yeah, there, Lee? Yeah, they just don't. They don't go away. Uh, let's see. Let's move on to question seven. Bill Richardson, former governor, governor of New Mexico. No, 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 no. He's in no, Fort Worth, Texas. Was surprised by the results of his sleuthing. He says, hi, guys. I've been a faithful listener uh, for almost two years. Enjoy the show and look forward to it every week. Thanks for an informative, insightful, deep dive into security. On with the story. Long ago, I changed my static DNS entries in my Linksys Home Wireless to the IP addresses of OpenDNS, something I do also. Yep. So during the recent discussions of DNS vulnerability, I thought I had little to worry about. However, the other day, I fat-fingered a web request and got a Charter Communications Not Found Result page. Wait a minute! Confused by this, I began to research. My router settings had not changed. And my client machine's IP config showed DNS set to the router IP and the two IP addresses of OpenDNS. Yet when I went to the DocsPara test page, I found my DNS server was vulnerable to DNS cache poisoning with all the requests being set out over a single port. Lastly, I searched Aaron and A-R-I-N, which is the, what does that stand for? Uh, anyway, no. <laughs> who is? And found that, of course, the IP address identified by DocsPara is... Owned by Charter Communications. My, well, that's, huh? That's interesting. I guess that's who's yeah. hosting his site. My questions are many. How could Charter intercept these? Oh, maybe they don't yeah. own his site. Exactly. How could I stop them from intercepting my DNS requests and use a security-aware DNS service? What are my options? So let me recap to make sure I understand. He's using OpenDNS, so theoretically all his DNS should go through it. But for well, some, he, uh, Let's say he's configured to use OpenDNS. Ah, and he's configured properly, it seems. Yes. And for some reason, Charter is intercepting these. Yes. What's going on? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, he said. Yes. This is a problem. This means that, okay, and, and think about it. DNS is over UDP that is not connection-oriented and that has no TCP connection. And his ISP can do anything it wants with his packets. So they are receiving DNS queries coming from his network out of his router with a destination IP on the packet of OpenDNS. They know that it's a DNS query because it's aimed at port 53, which is the universal DNS query port. All DNS servers are listening for incoming UDP and TCP traffic on their port 53 mm-hmm. charter for whatever reason perhaps for the purpose of intercepting 
and putting up their own advertising page, they're they're ignoring the destination IP. That's terrible. Of his DNS packets and changing them, rewriting them Ugh. to their own. Oh, so that man. His, no matter what he does, no matter what DNS configuration he uses at home, Charter is ignoring the, the destination IP, rewriting his packets on the fly so that they go to their DNS server. And if he, as he says, fat-fingered, the, which I think means typo. Mis- mistyped he, it, yeah. He mistyped it. Then, instead of, instead of his browser being told there's nothing at that IP, he's given an IP, his browser is given an IP of a server that Charter is running that brings up their own interception page yeah. for whatever purposes they choose. Usually advertising. This, uh, Verisign did this for a while and it was very... And boy, they didn't do it for long because yeah, that, really, that really pissed people off. But, but a lot of ISPs do that, and they say, well, we do it as a convenience. We have a much better page. And it's true. If you don't do that, then you get that stupid Internet Explorer page saying, I can't get anywhere. Okay, well, two things. First of all, you said many ISPs do this. Yeah. The only way to do it is rewriting DNS. Ah, interesting. Of course. So that means yeah, of course. All, all the ISPs that are, that are able to present their own page are doing so by preventing you from going to the DNS server you have asked for. And secondly, you'll notice that he ran the test at DocsPara, and it said, all your requests are coming from one port. So not only is his ISP screwing up his deliberately configured for security That's DNS, but they're, they're aiming it at an insecure server. They're doing a bad job. So they've, they, exactly. They've got a spoofable server, and they're forcing all of their customers to use their misconfigured spoofable <sighs> server. Is there any way to find out if your ISP is redirecting? Um, not quite yet, a but GRC route? will be... GRC will be telling you soon. Oh, really? Yeah. And how are you going to do that? I guess you could compare. <laughs> you could compare what you expect to see. Hmm. Yes, I'll be. I'll be making it very clear that um, about the 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 IP and the reverse the reverse lookup of the IP that that where we see queries coming into our test. So you'd instantly see that this was a Charter Communications DNS server, not Open DNS. Wow. That's sad. So even a trace route, you wouldn't necessarily. Well, you can't trace the DNS request, can you? Well, a trace route is is um, it, well exactly a trace route. Let's see, what would it do if it were there? There are many you know trace. There are many ways to do a trace you route. You see the, the ID, packets, but you don't see the DNS request go. Well, the, the way a trace route works is that you you deliberately send out packets with with very short TTLs and you times to live on the packets themselves, and you 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 incrementally increase the TTL. So when, when so the packet hits the first server, it decrements the TTL, which you sent out as one, it decrements it to zero, mm-hmm. which, does, which prohibits it from forwarding it to its destination. Instead, it sends it back to you with its IP uh, as the source of that return packet. You receive it, and inside that is, is the beginning of the packet you actually sent. So you know what you sent, and you know where it bounced. Then you send a packet out with a TTL of two. So it goes to the first server that decrements the TTL to one, forwards it to the second router. I'm sorry, the first router that decrements the, the TTL from two to one, which forwards it to the second router, which decrements it from one to zero. 
that prohibits it from forwarding the packet, so it bounces it back to you, and that's how you're able to build a a, a trace of of the of the direction the packets are taking and and the sequence of routers that they visit. So what would happen would be this thing would bounce its way over to Charter and end because the packet would have a TTL probably pretty low since Charter is your own ISP. The packet you generated would would hit the DNS server quickly as opposed to you know heading off across the internet over many more hops to get out to for example the open DNS server. So so a, a trace route if you knew to do it would be suspicious. But you'd have to you'd have to suspect that first. You can there's a Unix uh, command called dig that does a DNS uh, diagnostics. Oh, it's worth noting also, Leo, that you would specifically have to do you have to have the power to do a trace route of DNS traffic. That is, most trace routes will just use, for example, ICMP packets, which would not be redirected. So ICMP would go on its merry way, heading off for, for open DNS. Only a UDP packet bound for port 53 that you were using as the trace route um, payload would get have have its uh, destination IP rewritten and then get rewritten and and aimed at Charter's DNS server. So it'd be a pretty sophisticated um, thing to do, but certainly doable. Interesting. Easier to go to GRC once I get that service. I can't up wait till you get that up. That's going to be fantastic. That's that's <laughs> a very it. good use for that. That's not that wasn't your primary intention though, was it? Well, no, 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 no. I, I've a got side a much better statistical system built um, than than anyone has before, and Very it's interesting. it's coming alive, and I'm excited. And this is this is an example of why this problem has not gone away. I decided to invest in the time of creating a permanent facility, much as I have for Shields Up, for DNS, because these kinds of bogus things can happen where people can get into your DNS business. And, and you know, end up rerouting you to a spoofable server, even though you've deliberately configured one not to be. Wow. When I run um, that better DNS search that you gave us last time, I think it was snipurl slash, dot, 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 dot com slash. The one that goes to OARC's yeah, site. Yeah, DNS yeah. test, I think. Snipurl.com slash DNS test. But I would get results back from both Comcast and OpenDNS. Um, and you're a Comcast user? Yeah. Um, what, what must be happening, there, there, are, there are a number of things have happened. I've, I've got a, a preliminary test up that the people in our news groups have been using. And, for example, some of them have received responses from as many as 15 different <laughs> name servers. Yeah, I got two different, two different, three different name servers responding. Yeah, um, it's we're going to spend a, a, an episode talking about this once I have this up, so people will be able to see what's happening. There are all kinds of things that are going on. For example, some of our some of our early testers were reporting. Wait a minute, I'm seeing IPs that are not the ones I configured. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, because what's happening is those the IPs showing up in the test are the are the IPs of the server that actually issued the query out onto the public internet. But it can also often be that you are that the IPs you configure, for example, your ISPs IPs, they could go to a pair of servers that are forwarding the requests right. to a pool of servers yes. in a, some sort of a round robin fashion. That that is what's happening because I go to San Fran Comcast and then go to Salt Lake City Comcast. 
Okay. So yep. they have some pool somewhere. But I also go to Open DNS, so I'm very confused. <laughs> <laughs> we will resolve your confusion, my son. I can't wait. I can't wait. Yep. That's gonna be a, that's gonna be a very valuable tool. Uh, let's get a listener from Heidelberg. This will be fun. His name is David. He hosts an interesting idea. A little pun from Steve Gibson. I've been listening to the podcast for several months, and I love them. After hearing Peter Chase's idea of avoiding spoofable DNS by using IP addresses in browser bookmarks instead of domain names, which is something we talked about a little earlier, I think it would be better to use the hosts file. However, if internet site IP addresses change, that would pose a problem. So why couldn't the hosts file be updated automatically? Suddenly sounds like he's setting up a DNS server. It could help block ads, map domain names to IP addresses, throw malware off the track. An application service or other automated method that updated the host file could be very useful, perhaps dangerous, and better than something that will go through my Firefox favorites or bookmarks, say, or my IE favorites, and just replace them with all the IP addresses. It's not a silver bullet. I find it interesting, and I would like to hear your comments. Keep up the great work. I mean, this is how DNS was born, basically, right? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, it is the case. I mean, I could see an interesting piece of software that that is sort of aware of spoofability problems um, that periodically it it opens up your host's file, reads the host's file and goes out to to verify and possibly update any entries you have in your host's file to to keep it synchronized with reality. Basically, it'd be like setting up a little sort of custom DNS interception system where, you know, you put www.doubleclick.net into your host's file. And, and the question is, okay, the problem is if, if doubleclick.net changes their IP, then your host file is obsolete. So imagine a little tool which would itself be a DNS resolver driven by the co- current contents of your host file whose job is to keep it current. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. But isn't that, I mean, isn't that kind of what DNS is doing? Is it's keeping a master list and a matching list? And in fact, that's what you do with OpenDNS. You can have it block uh, porn sites if you want. Uh, yeah, and you're right. So all you're really doing is you, you'd be, the, the, the benefit of this would be if you don't trust an external source of DNS, but but somebody wrote something that was like really anti-spoof. I mean, it's absolutely possible now to write an anti-spoofing, an anti-spoofable DNS server simply by issuing a query and seeing how many responses you get, as we right. said earlier. I mean, so it's, it's or, or to like start, you, you know, if you're just you and you've got a small host file, there's no reason not to start at the root servers right. whose who's are, who are based on IP addresses. They, they have domain names, but, you know, you you can't look them up unless you <laughs> unless you already know them. So so you could imagine a little DNS resolver that marches down from the root servers to the com servers to the domain servers to the machine level and itself follows the DNS step by step which makes it unspoofable. It's not caching. It's getting authoritative information at every step in the DNS chain and that would allow you to have an absolutely unspoofable hosts file that of sites that you cared about that that your system would refer to first and nobody could screw with them and they'd be kept current very clever if i had more time i'd write one but i'm a little busy right <laughs> you're now. busy doing other things <laughs> uh let's see question nine is from Derek O'Hara in reading england 
He suggests another blended threat. We've got to do something on blended threats. This is very interesting. Yeah. Hi, Stephen Leo. In Security Now, episode 155, you talked about SSL and the fact that it cannot be faked. So sites like PayPal can be relied upon because they force you to use SSL and a certificate. However, in a previous Security Now, you talked about the root certificate authorities and how many of them there are. Wouldn't it be possible for Mr. Russian Hacker to spoof domain and then using one of those other more dubious root certificate authorities create SSL server certificates for PayPal.com but with a different signing authority? In this way, couldn't a hacker pretend to be even an SSL secured site? And wouldn't the web browser client happily accept this without question? Hey, hey, thanks for the fantastic podcast and for ensuring we never miss a week, including earthquakes. Well, we've talked kind of about this, haven't we? Yeah, this this is actually another one of the questions that that sort of misunderstands the way SSL works. We, we, we have, as I said, I think it was a week or, a week or two ago, I'm going to do a, just an episode, a whole podcast on SSL to how the protocol works to make it very clear because we've talked about the certificate side of SSL, but never really about the way the protocol works. So, so what, what Derek was asking was, couldn't you spoof the, the domain of the certificate authority, which is really the same question that was asked earlier in this podcast, and, and wouldn't that then cr- allow an otherwise invalid certificate to be seen as valid? Okay, well, you don't have to spoof the domain of the certificate authority because your browser already has a huge a number of certificate authorities. In fact, that's been, you know, my anguish is how many there are, and we must trust every single one of them. Because even one of them issuing a certificate maliciously or mistakenly compromises, well, you know, compromises our ability to trust the real owner of that certificate. So um, if there were a dubious root certificate authority, whose, whose, um, certificate was already in our browser, as so many of them are, um, not dubious root certificate authorities, hopefully, but, but legitimate ones, and that dubious authority issued www.paypal.com certificate to Mr. Mr. Russian Hacker, then yes, now, now he's got a bad, he's, he's got a maliciously issued or mistakenly issued, or somehow he got himself a valid certificate for paypal.com. Normally, that's not a problem. But again, in threat blending, we take not a big problem. I mean, not good, but not a big problem. And, and, the, and the DNS spoofing, which certainly can be a problem, we put them together and we end up with a much bigger problem because that would then allow Mr. Russian Hacker to set up secure connections to www.paypal.com. Right. The browser would connect happily um, presumably, if it was one of those extended validation certificates, the, you know, all the green lights would turn oh, on. See, that I was going to ask you about that. So the, the, the EV certificate does not fix this problem. No, it does not. It's just harder to get one, hopefully making it more difficult for Mr. Russian hacker to get one. Right. Yeah, because he has to provide all sorts of uh, information, personal information and f- whatever, fingerprints and stuff like that. He's not going to do that, I would think. Well, I'll tell you. I mean, I, I had an experience... Very good experience, actually, with GoDaddy um, two weeks ago. I needed a wildcard certificate for the first time ever What's for my that? first. Uh, that, that, that's like star.grc.com. Ah, okay. 
I, that is to accept secure connections because my first approach at doing this DNS uh, spoofability test that I'm building, it used it used a whole bunch of browser queries over SSL because I wanted people to be able to use SSL connections of GRC specifically so that they could avoid spoofability problems. You know, we talked about, okay, well, what, how, how does it make sense to go to a DNS test if the DNS server you're using might be broken and spoofed and then the test would be spoofed? So the idea was, okay, we're going to let people come in by IP or by SSL. And I thought I was going to force people to switch over to SSL and not allow them to have a non-SSL connection to GRC. But if I then had lots of assets that the web page was pulling, those had to be SSL. And the way this worked was it pulled them all from different machines at GRC.com in order to force DNS lookups. So anyway, I needed a wildcard certificate, star.grc.com. Well, the good news was I had it in five minutes. Huh. Um, GoDaddy is very nice, was very quick, but the extent of their validation was sending email to the email address registered on my domain, and this was all automated. Yeah. It, so they sent it to, the, to, my, to my who is email address, right. which came to me, and I, I clicked a link that I received in the email that I was expecting. It went back to them, verified it. I got an email certificate. Now, not long ago, in the last couple of weeks, we have heard of who is database entries getting changed. Mm -hmm. Remember, that was in just the last month or so. Mm -hmm. There was a who is entry change, which means all that Mr. Russian Hacker would need to do with an automated certificate issuance like GoDaddy has is get his email address into the domain record of of the person he wants to spoof, and then he says, hey, I'm PayPal.com. They verify through automation, send email to that record, he gets a certificate, bang. Wow. <sighs> but that's the non-EV certificate, and that's how it's been all along, right? I mean, that's why yeah. we need an EV certificate. Because it, it certainly is, we hope, that it's not going to be a five-minute automated you know, email <laughs> loop verification. Otherwise, it's back to the drawing board. Right. Matthew is an intense listener in Fresno, California, who's been thinking about DNS spoofing. Steve and Leo, I was listening to episode 156 while I was driving to work, and I heard Steve mention that the DNS vulnerability cannot spoof your email logon. Ah, it got me thinking. Our listeners are always thinking. One, if I was a hacker and I was spoofing, say, HTTPS colon slash slash mail.gmail.com, couldn't I also spoof verisign.com and have my fake Gmail certificate authenticate to a fake Verisign, but authenticate correctly if I created a fake Gmail cert from the fake Verisign. Two, if I were a hacker and I don't care about the contents of your email, couldn't I just redirect logon pages for the webmail sites and capture the username and password? As a hacker, I don't care if I can get to your email, I just want your credentials. Browsing the most popular webmail services, I found that going to http colon slash slash mail.google.com and http colon slash slash mail.yahoo.com redirects you to their SSL site for authentication, but going to http colon slash slash hotmail.com does not. So if I could duplicate the look of the Hotmail page, then redirect, redirect the DNS traffic, I can capture more than enough information. Thanks for a great podcast. I listen intensely to it every week. So he's thinking, 
Is he thinking right? Well, again, it, this this shows that there was a little confusion in the way certificate changer, uh, chains are authenticated. And that is that that many of our listeners, that's why I've, I wanted to really pound this point home. Many of our listeners were believing that there was, during SSL authentication, that there was some sort of communication back to the certificate authority. And, and so I want to just make sure everyone gets it, that that is not the case. In the last couple of months, for example, Microsoft sent out to Windows an SSL cer- root certificate update package. And so that that's the only way these things get into our systems is that they, they come in with the browser or as part of a, a, a secured, signed, authenticated update. So those root certificates then statically authenticate any certificate from a remote site with no further communication to Microsoft or VeriSign or GoDaddy or anybody else. So so that part is not the case. However, his for example, his discovery that that hotmail.com does not use secure authentication, that's important because it means that they would be a perfect target for a DNS spoofing attack where somebody would set up a fake Hotmail account and acquire the credentials of every, everybody trying to log into their Hotmail account while that spoof was in place huh. because they would, he would not then need a Hotmail.com SSL certificate, which is more difficult to get. Unfortunately, as we learned from the prior question, not as difficult as we would like it to be, but um, they would just leave it over a standard HTTP connection and, you know, happily collect username and passwords. And in fact, could turn around and open a connection to Hotmail and be a a man-in-the-middle attack, essentially, capturing that, grabbing the Hotmail page that the user expects to come up and forwarding that back. And we've talked about you know, browser-based man-in-the-middle attacks before, using as long as you don't need security, that is SSL, uh, DNS spoofing is a perfect entree to a man-in-the-middle attack. Wow. So you're saying it is doable, but it's yes. a little more hard, a little more difficult than one would imagine. Well, it's another example of why, but why Gmail and Yahoo that, that do redirect non-secure authentication to a secure authentication mode. Right. That's why That's they're why doing the, the right do thing. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and assuming assuming that, that Matthew is right and Hotmail doesn't, that's really bad on Hotmail's Kinda part. Because I mean, it's all it. kinds of problems. Isn't it possible that it's uh, one of those situations where you're... You, if you had a cookie, for example, you might, you might have a cookie on his machine, and if it recognizes in your incoming connection a cookie which is not yet expired it might you know treat you um with less security of course the problem there is you're not over ssl so your cookies can be sniffed because you know cookie snarfing is another problem see now i'm looking at this i just logged in so first i went to http colon hotmail blah 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 logged in now now presumably that login even though it doesn't say https is a secure login no no i mean it would have to say https but remember, we have those pages where you the, the the submit is secure, but the page itself is not. The page you get to would have to be secure. Okay, the page you get to would have to be secure. But now I'm in my mailbox, and it is HTTP. It's not uh, S. Sounds bad, Leo. I hope someone would just grab your username and ID on the clock. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now I can look at I can I can view the source right and see if it's a secure um, submission. 
Submission yes, form, if you right? go if you if you go back to the submission page, huh. and then like just do a sorts a, a search for HTTPS, and you ought to find it in. You ought to find the, or it could be using JavaScript. Who knows? What, it is. You know, it's all obscured because it's one big long JavaScript. Yeah. The, the, then the way the way to do it would be to use a a browser monitor tool. You know, a wire. Uh, um. You know. A, um. See, but no user is going to do that. I mean, I, you're just going to yeah, assume I mean, it's Microsoft. It must be secure. Sounds bad. All right. Let me try again. I'm going to no. So I'm on a regular HTTP page. You're saying when I press the give them my password and credentials, and I, I give them the sign in button, I should then be dumped into an HTTPS page. Oh, and if you hover your mouse over the button, does the URL of that button show up in down below in the browser bar? No. Okay. And I am now, oops, I gave the wrong address. And now, what? okay, I gave the wrong password, and it did go to an HTTPS page. So presumably. Uh, it does sound like they've got some mixed in there, yes. They're, they've, they're, <laughs> I mean, come on. This is yeah. Microsoft. They couldn't be that. Okay. Forget I said anything. Number 11, Isaac Church in Loomis, California worries that his characters are being ignored. Hi, Steve. I'm a Wells Fargo customer, and as I happen to notice, they accept passwords that technically are not correct. As long as the first part of the password is correct, the characters that follow are ignored. Can you believe this? <laughs> But it's well, okay, this might not be a serious security threat, but as a programmer, it bothers me since wouldn't it make it easier for an attacker to correctly guess my password, wouldn't it? I'm also curious if other banks have this issue. Thanks for the great show and software. So what, they have like a seven-letter password, and if you put in 12, it just ignores the last five? (laughs) That's what it sounds like. It's like, oh, my goodness. Um, Now, okay, this means a bunch of things. This means that they're not doing a hash. Or if they are, they're only hashing on the first X characters. It probably means they're storing the password, oh, boy. and that they're only they're only paying attention to. Uh, no, okay, I don't know if he's added characters after he defined his password, or if he he used a longer password and then he changed the end of it, and they didn't care because they're only recording or checking the first n number of characters now. <laughs> That's really disturbing. It is you know? extremely disturbing. And so if, you know, and of course, the, the, the true threat of security, first of all, anybody who's doing this, you wonder, okay, who wrote this? And do I trust anything else right. about the site if this, is, if this is how they start off? But then, of course, the issue, the, the true issue of security is how big is N? If, if, they're, if they're only using the first N characters, where is that threshold? Is that eight is that nine? Is that, as you and me were, su- were suggesting, seven? Which we know really quickly becomes too short for security. So, right. you know, this is very disturbing. I, I, you know, I almost hesitated making this public, but I thought, well, our listeners need to know, especially if they're Wells Fargo customers. Maybe some of them can start messing around with their passwords and seeing, you know, what N is. And, you know, definitely, <laughs> def- definitely complain to somebody. That's, That's bizarre. Bad. Yeah. That is just bizarre. We're going to get to our 12th question in which Russell says, I am not a pirate. (laughs) Just a second. But right now I want to mention our friends at Astaro.com. They sponsor this show, have been for two years. We're now in our fourth year of programming. They've been here since almost day one. So I guess they've been over three years now with us. It's kind of amazing. 
Astaro makes the incredible Astaro Security Gateway. If your small or medium business network needs superior protection from spam, from viruses, from hackers, complete VPN, including SSL VPN, intrusion protection, full content filtering, an industrial strength firewall, secure encryption by S MIME or OpenPGP coming in and going. Uh, two antiviruses for email and antivirus for the web. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Astaro version 7 is it. In fact, you could try it for free. Just a free demo unit just by calling them. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. That's 877-427-8276. And for large multi-user enterprise environments, they have a unique blend of active-active clustering. It makes it possible for you to get together as many as 10 gateways, eliminating the need to install additional load balancers. It's very clever. It's patent pending. And it does increase the speed and reliability of network traffic as you get bigger and bigger. You can also get a Starro uh, for home use, for non-commercial use. The V7 package is available. In fact, there's a Greg over to VMware. There's a great uh, appliance using a Starro. It's one of their top downloaded appliances because people know a Starro is it. The best. 877, the number four. A-S-T-A-R-O, or visit Astaro.com. We thank them so much for their support of security now. They're the best. Thank you, Astaro. We love you. Don't ever change, except to get more secure. It's nice, you know, that um, we talk about security all the time and how badly implemented it is to know that there are people out there who, you know, are like you, that just take it really seriously and do it right. Um, and uh, and uh, so I'm just, I'm just glad that they're part of this show. Yeah, I met those guys at the, They're at cool, the they? RSA conference. They were, you know, yeah. seriously oh, yeah. know, Unix people. You want somebody who is really, you know, you don't want somebody who's like the guy who wrote the Wells Fargo login. <laughs> <laughs> you, you want somebody who's uh, like really paying attention uh, here. Uh, oh. uh, yeah, you got most of it right. And we don't want customers <laughs> complaining that they can't log in. So uh, I guess is good enough. You just got to wonder. Got started on the right foot. He just kind of fell off the track halfway through his password. So we'll let him. We'll, we'll let him have that. He's one. a code monkey. He's gonna let the manager write the login page. Come on in and manager all your money. Question twelve. Russell McDormand in Ontario. He's in Ottawa, in Canada, the capital, the nation's capital. He says, "I am not a pirate." In the last Q&A episode, someone mentioned that Spinrite was the only program they had bought in a long time. Leo commented that this person must be a pirate. Well, Spinrite is also the only program I have bought in more than 15 years. And I am not a pirate. Grin. Instead, I'm a user and commercial support person for free Libra and open source software. Floss, baby! I've purchased CDs and manuals over the year. But given that licensing is royalty-free, I have not bought any of this software. All of it is perfectly legal. As it happens, I'm the policy coordinator for Clue, Canada's Association for Open Source. That's at linux.ca. Thank you, Russell. One of the hardest messages to get across to politicians is that charging royalties for software is not a necessity, but only one narrow business model among many. I just thought I'd add this. Thanks for the great security show. Russell, you are right on. You are right on, and I apologize to open source advocates everywhere who have not purchased anything but security now in 15 years. Well, it's been right. I, I really, I thought I that mean, was neat. Right, I yeah. really appreciate that, uh, you know. That he bought that. Bought been right. There's no open source analog. That's why. Yep. The one and the only. And Steve, would you do us this favor? Put it in your will 
that the day you pass on, that SpinWrite goes open source. Okay, but it's all assembly language. That's okay. And it's- I think there's somebody out there who could figure it out. I think that's true. <laughs> In fact, I think there's somebody out there who can't wait to get his hands on your source code, is dying to look at your source code. How- Actually, SpinWrite Spin is so stable um, and generally is, you know, my major versions are, you know, have, have many Few years and far between, between them. Yeah, yeah. The, and and GRC is running so smoothly now that I could even see after I'm in my grave, Greg and Sue could you really Just keep it going. Easily continue on, and they ought to, because, you know... You know what's going to happen at some point. It's hard, and we're seeing it already, SSD hard drives. Their hard drives are going to change in such a way that SpinWrite doesn't make sense anymore. True. I mean, if everybody goes SSD, then then we won't need SpinWrite. Yeah, the the drive technology is maturing at such a rate that it's going to be tough for solid state to catch up, but we know ultimately it will. And, I mean, look, look, look at the prices of hard drives, Leo. It's just... I mean, I it, it must be that the manufacturers are saying, uh-oh, we have such an investment in spinning magnetic platters that we want to make sure people keep buy the, buying these. So we're going to sell you, you know, a terabyte for $125. It's like, oh, well, in that case, that's a good deal. I just bought the new uh, Velociraptors, two of them. Yep. For our Ultimate Gaming Machine. They're so cool. They're so tiny. I just, it's amazing. And they're 300 gigabytes this big, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. And you're going to run SpinWrite on each of them before, at, at level four, before yes. before you put them in. Good. And we're going to ship a copy of SpinWrite with it. Yep. So that they will never have trouble. And I just bought for ninety eight bucks five hundred gig drives. These are ESATA drives. Ninety eight bucks for five hundred gigs. Wow! Wow! Unbelievable. Fast. Nice. Uh, and what manu- What manufacturer? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> It's all, it's all <laughs> but there they were. It's all a commodity. I don't know. I Good think, price. I don't Good know price. what's in. I don't know what's inside. You know the uh, the enclosure is, says cavalry, but uh, I don't know what kind of drive. Nowadays, it's all kind of commodity. Yeah, just plug it in, and it goes. It'll be it'll be Western Digital inside. Yeah, almost certainly Western Digital. Yeah. Yep. They're still the rock bottom price. Yeah, and good drives though, right? Not not bad drives. I know you like Hitachi, but uh, WD's fine. Well, we're out of time, I think, uh, and out of questions, so I think maybe time to wrap this up. Next week, Steve, what do we want to talk about? Next week, we're going to discuss the other really interesting presentation from Black Hat, which was this supposed complete defeat of all the much-heralded security benefits of Vista. Oh, boy. Vista. Is it safe? (gasps) Just Space Layout Randomization, ASLR. And DEP, Data Execution Prevention. Can't question wait. is, how easy is it just to bypass them? And apparently, the Vista security bypass is a reality. It's so good to have somebody like Steve in our back pocket who can look through these presentations with a technical eye and judge them on their merit. Because otherwise, you know, I mean, the New York Times is not going to know. They're just going to report that this guy says it. They're not going to know enough to figure it out. And frankly, I can't look at it and figure it out. So thank you, Steve. Yeah, it's a 54-page report, so I'll, and I'll be doing my homework between now and then, but I will figure it out, and I'll give our listeners the complete rundown. Thank you so much. Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. That's where you'll find 16-kilobit versions of this for the bandwidth-impaired, the low-quality, but, but still audible version. <laughs> the low-quality. You can find a crappy yeah. version of this there. No, no, but it's uh, okay. for people. It's a small, small, uh, small file. And also transcripts, which are very high-quality, thanks to Elaine. And uh, she edits out all my ums and uh, hey. 
Watch the leaves in my do 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 do. How did she spell that? <laughs> she, I think she says Steve plays the trumpet. <laughs> she she was a court reporter. I guess when you're a court reporter, you have to do those things. You can't. Oh, and she does like this excruciatingly detailed biomedical uh, reporting. I mean, wow. stuff where every single syllable matters. And the and doctor goes do do do. You better get it in there. And you know she she gets a copy of the Q and A because she insists on spelling everyone's name right. right. You know right. all of our listeners. Do, do, do. Well, I wonder. I wonder what she does when you do one of your accents. Leo says in, in, a, in, in bad Italian bad accent. Bad Italian accent. Or in, <laughs> I, actually, I have to say, my tech support guy, Greg, who listens to security now, he says, you know, Leo is really good with those accents. He ought to just keep it up throughout the entire question. No. And there were several here where I noticed that no, you I do a little bit. Just a flavor. Sort of fade out pretty quickly. Flavor. So. A little Rest flavor. Greg. Greg Greg's request has been heard. So. All right. <laughs> I did, I, I did I get my requ- job. I get an equal and maybe more requests saying, knock it off, Laporte. Uh, okay. It's not funny. You struck a nice balance. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget, if you go to GRC.com to get your copy of SpinRight, the, the ultimate, the only, the one and only, the only program worth paying for, hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and all of Steve's great free stuff like Shields Up and all that great stuff. And soon to come, some neat new software, too. I'm excited. Steve, we'll stop. We will see you next week on Security Now. Talk to you then, my friend. Security Now.